You've seen their TV shows. You've watched their webcasts. Now, Partigan and Stapes invite you to Poker in the Ears. Hello, my babies, and welcome to Poker in the Ears. I'm Uncle Daddy Joe Stapleton. He's my work wife, James Hardigan. And for one week only, we are not maintaining a long-distance relationship. For th- Yeah, well, it's often one week, but yes. For now, we are in the same room together. I am back from Amsterdam. Wow, getting back from there was a hoot. I'm going to tell you, boot it. Coming up on today's show, week three of the Platinum Pass Ass Path Cash Grab. I got to work the word podcast in there. Yes. Platinum Pass Podcast Path Cash Grab. I'll, I'll work on it for next week. It's in the books, and it went A, perfectly, B, pretty well, or C, we're still not talking about I'll it. I'll settle for B. It went pretty well. Pretty well. I attended a very fancy charity event uh, last week. Yes, it was last week. I'll tell you a little bit about that today. And this is a an interesting episode of the show, guys. A little bit different than usual. We've got a very important big interview coming up. Uh, very special, interesting guy on the show today. His name is Eric Auday. And if you don't know his story already, it is enough to make an entire podcast series. Like a serial type series based on what he has been through. Yeah, I get the impression with this guy that this is going to be an extended interview. I think we hinted at that last week, that there's a long story to tell here. So because of that, we're going to push a lot of stuff to next week. No super fan this week. We're just going to cover the bare bones, including the details of the next free roll in the league and discuss future super fan subjects to get people involved in the show. But yeah, I think this is mainly going to be the Eric Orday edition of Poker in the Ears. All day, all day. And uh, I know this guy from years ago. Very interesting guy. Looking forward to talking to him in just a few minutes. Uh, so Amsterdam, as you know, was broken up a little bit by work. Yeah, you had the Twitch stream, hashtag disaster night. You had last week's podcast. podcast. And so it was supposed to be like my birthday sort of holiday. And because of work getting in the way, we really didn't get to have a night in Amsterdam until the final night we were there. And of course... I had to travel back the next day for this charity event. It all sort of ties together. So uh, my girlfriend and I, we went out in Amsterdam and ended up meeting up with some locals, like just making friends and brought them back to the houseboat. And we all stayed up all night hanging out and drinking until the person came the next morning to collect the keys for the Airbnb. Ah, So... We were just an absolute mess by the time she showed up. Um, something got broken in the Airbnb, which I like was really stressed out about because it's embarrassing, right? It's embarrassing to be like, oh, hey, I stayed in your house and we broke we broke a towel rack. I like put my foot up on the towel rack and broke it. So I had to give them some cash for that. So we go from being up all night. There's a bunch of traffic to get to Schiphol. Is that how you say it? Schiphol Airport. We get we we're th- we're like just zombies, right? Because we're afraid we don't want to fall asleep at the airport, miss our flight, so we're zombies. Then we take the hour long flight back to London, landed city airport. Then there's an insane amount of traffic um, to get back. It takes an hour and a half to get from city airport back to my hotel in Leicester Square. So we're absolute zombies. But then what do I have to do when I get back, James? You've got to now get ready for the charity event. I have to go rent a tuxedo. Of course, because you revealed last week that it's black tie, so now you're going to be even more out of pocket than you already are. Correct. So uh, I tell my girlfriend to take a nap for a while. I'm going to go out and get a tuxedo. I go get a tuxedo, and the guys ask me questions. What's your shirt size? Blah, blah, blah. And 
I, I think he says, what's your shoe size? But he says, sure. And I go, oh, yeah, I need shoes, too. He's like, oh, we don't do shoes here. So now I'm like, fuck, do I just, do I go somewhere else now and go rent shoes? And I was like, fuck it. I was like, I'll take a pair of shoes. So I end up buying a pair of patent leather shoes. <laughs> so the, the tux is 80 pounds to rent. Not horrible, but. Still, still it's, it's, it's an expense that you could have done without. Exactly. The shoes are 140 pounds. And this is the thing. This is not you getting dressed up for a paid gig anymore. This is you getting dressed up just to go to a party that you were meant to be paid for. Correct. But and so now, now I'm getting this cool opportunity, right? And, but I'm out of pocket instead of profiting. I was going to get paid to do the event, and now I'm not getting paid, and I'm spending a bunch of money on it. So I go back to the room. I take a quick nap. I get dressed, and I realize no cufflinks. So now am I going to be the jackass with like flappy sleeves at this black tie event? No. So I go back to the store buy some cufflinks so now i'm out 20 pounds for the cufflinks 140 pounds for the 80 pounds for the 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 changing the flight so i could go to this in the first place i've now officially spent more money than i would have made from hosting the event in the first place wow and all i would say is this it was worth it question mark Okay. Like it was close. It was a good night. It was a great night. It was at Old Annabelle's, which is this really prestigious club. It's like, I'm sure every club in England says this, but it's like the only club the Queen's ever been to, like that kind of thing. And there are a lot of, uh, there was a Spice Girl there. Which one? Jerry. Jerry Halliwell. There, Jer- well, she's not Halliwell anymore, I don't think. She's oh, She's got course, a different yeah, last name now. Um, and so there are a lot of beautiful people there, and I drank a lot of expensive champagne and had what I assume was probably like a three or four hundred pound per head party that I normally would have never got. It was great to bring my girlfriend to an event like this. That was really what made it worth it. Like, hey, check out your boyfriend here taking you to the high society party. Um, and the good news was that we were so, my girlfriend and I are so well suited for each other because the entire night we're like kind of giving each other the eye. But it's not the eye you're thinking of. And finally, we're like about ready again. She goes, "We're definitely going to McDonald's after this, right?" Like, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, fucking lutely. So we went to McDonald's and oh, fell asleep. You're so classy. Fell asleep with like McDonald's wrappers next to us. You are so, so classy. Uh, it was a very and I and I slept. Uh, when when she left on Sunday, I slept for like 15 hours. Wow. Um, quick recap of the Poker in the Ears Free Roll League. It was almost disaster night two on Monday, thanks to a BT OpenReach engineer crossing fucking wires at the junction box outside my house 10 minutes before we were de- due to go on air. Dude, this is I've made this analogy a, a, like dozens of times of all the broadcasts and podcasts I've done, and it's always like the fucking clock tower and Back to the Future every time where it's at the last second, you're just plugging in some cable. And in this case, it was just like Doc Brown being out in the street and the guy being like, you got you got a permit for this? Like, <laughs> you got to go outside and yell at a guy to plug your internet back in. Yeah, and then I had to restart everything, get everything powered up, which is why we were a little bit late going on air. Um, but other than that, I think that evening went pretty well. And when you consider that we had Ali Shaban on, as a guest, and we had the sixth labor of Ali as part of our three and a half hour stream. It could have been a complete shit show. It was probably only a minor shit show. Yeah, it was. It was exactly the shit show that it should have been. 
It was the it was the should have been shit show supposedly um, because you know it was supposed to be a bit of a shit show while we were running this uh, this prank that James was not in on that Arlie didn't know it was going to be his sixth labor and I was giving him a bunch of dumb shit to do and look I will admit people think that I would be really great at this at like making someone do dumb shit and I kind of feel for Arlie a little bit and I want him to succeed and so I didn't give him the most ridiculous challenges that people sent through well a lot of them involved him taking his shirt off which as you know is a no-no on Twitch of course so he has to go and change off camera right and so that was that was the one thing that I was like okay we can get him to jump jump through some hoops changing changing the shirts was like a good clean fun Uh, but some of the stuff people wanted him to like sing for 30 minutes i was like guys we gotta we gotta make these things somewhat reasonable but uh he got james a couple times he got james with the uh the porno actor and the uh what was oh asking you for food recommendations he genuinely frustrated you when you're like how about sushi he's like nah what about pizza no i i think the uh the pokestars blog uh put it perfectly when they said that the challenge was basically to troll james the least patient man on the planet (laughs) at the behest of the viewers um as far as the poker was concerned none of us put in a decent showing in the main event but in the the home games that we run uh the cash table didn't go your way joe i can't remember how many buy-ins you donated but it was not a good session five or six yeah it was tough you know i was i tend to just click buttons when we're playing in those things anyway but given that i was also dealing with stuff stuff, yeah which i didn't realize at the time that this was all going on in the background so i just thought you were playing badly right well i mean it's stands to reason that it six of one and right could have also been playing badly but like so i'm getting these twitter messages coming in then feeding them to arlie and then trying to watch for him to complete them so i could do the next one i had a lot of shit going on so i couldn't even play my typical brand of bad poker it was the <laughs> worst possible poker but every cloud silver lining both of us made the final table of the 10 and a bit dollar turbo as a result of that your second place finish in that event you did end up in profit for the evening There were a couple of oops moments, by the way, when we both were at the same table. Uh (laughs) One was Joe announcing his cards while I still was in the hand. And the other was, I think, I had folded and then the two of us start discussing the best way for Joe to play his hand, forgetting, of course, that it is once meant to be one player to a hand. Oh, did we? See, I don't even... I didn't even realize we did that. Did yes. you realize that later? Did Afterwards, I realized that we shouldn't be doing that. And kind of, even though it's in a home game setting, we still have to be conscious of the fact that we have to not kind of uh, do anything untoward. Now, if you had if you had not been at the table, we could discuss the hand. No, no, no. no. Oh, interesting. No, one player to a hand. Shouldn't be advising you. I still think ultimately the hands played themselves um let's just ca- recap the leaderboard because there have now been two of the eight games played as things stand and bear in mind the leaderboard is available on the podcast homepage. it's also been published by the pokestars blog for markets that don't have the podcast homepage. our shrink is currently in the lead with 17 ko's remember the leaderboard is measuring the number of knockouts when you said our shrink i was just like do we have a therapist together that i've just blocked out our nope. shrink our shrink <laughs> has had 17 KOs. There's a bunch of players, including XL1971, currently sitting in second with 15 KOs. Here's my question to you, Joe. We have got the second chance all-in shootout awarding a platinum pass, which is open to 
anyone and everyone who achieves five or more knockouts after two of the eight games, how many players do you think are eligible already for that free roll? Over 100. Close. 97. 97 players have had five or more KOs. Still six games to go, and that does mean that it isn't too late to start getting involved. Uh, All the details you need on this promotion are in episode 128 of the podcast, if you want to listen back to that. And if you listen to all of this episode, you will get the star code that will issue a ticket to game three, which is a $500 free roll, a progressive KO free roll on Monday the 22nd of October. Plus, there will be a $50 bounty on J. Hartigan. Joe can't play because he will be in the state of Nevada, but there will also be a $50 bounty on our guest, Fatima DeMelo. Oh, that's cool. Fatima will be guesting on the stream, and by watching that stream at twitch.tv slash pokerstars at 8.30 p.m. CET on Monday, you will learn the password that goes with the ticket to register for the free roll. Now, a lot of people were making snide comments in the chat about the number of players from Russia and Ukraine yeah. who must be huge podcast fans. If everyone's on board with this, I am going to hold off on announcing the, the password until literally, and I'll factor in the delay, don't worry, yeah. but literally like two minutes before the free roll starts. Because I figure that the information, even if I give it out 15 minutes before the game starts, it's getting published it travels on. instantaneously. Oh, my God. I mean, it's preparing. I've been sent links to forums. I've been sent links to social media sites that specialize in giving out free roll information. If I withhold it to the last possible moment, right. that does mean that it can't be amplified as much as it could be. Right. And that might restrict the number of value hunters getting in the game. Right. We don't want value hunters, but also we don't want to block people who genuinely uh, listen to and are part of our community who listen to the podcast. So I think that, obviously, you know, when you start getting into like restricting things then you restrict people that actually uh legitimately do listen to the podcast of course course there are people from those countries so i like this idea i have to do something really important there might be a weird noise okay good someone noticed that i had auto registered for the one dollar second chance oh the one dollar warm-up one dollar one dollar warm-up next week and i won't be here so I yeah. need to unregister right now while I'm thinking about it. <laughs> that is a really good point. And that is what the evening will begin with. If you watch our Twitch stream on Monday night, there will be plenty of side events, including the $1 warm-up. And you are welcome to join the Poker in the Ears Home Game Club. The club ID is 21538820. And the invitation code is hello my babies. So we did mention at the top that most of this podcast is dedicated to an extended interview with a chap called Eric Orday. This is someone that Joe knows I'd never come across before. Eric is an actor, he is a stunt performer, and he is a poker player. And Eric has a story, a story that involves him being locked up in prison in Pakistan for unknowingly trying to smuggle opium out of the country. And his story has now been told in a new documentary that's available on a number of platforms, including iTunes, called Three Years in Pakistan. And because he's made this documentary, Joe, Eric reached out to you about coming on the show. He did, yes. And I'm glad he did, because it's one of those things where I've been around poker so long that I'd kind of forgotten about this story. And I remember when I first heard it being like, wow, this is uh, this is quite the tale. And I'm glad that he got back in touch because I think that we've got a whole new audience now of people that maybe didn't hear that Poker Road radio back from 2009 or whenever I last spoke to Eric. And I think that there is, first of all, the story is interesting as hell. Uh, although based partially on human misery, so I don't want to focus on that too much, but it's also inspiring and uplifting too. 
and it's well worth hearing, so we're lucky to have him. Yeah, we've made it work, despite the eight-hour time difference. It's 9 o'clock here in London in the morning. It's 1 a.m., the early hours of the morning for Eric in L.A., uh, but we're very pleased to welcome Eric Orday to the podcast. Thank you for joining us, Eric. No, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. You guys are doing me a solid. You're helping me promote my, my new documentary, so thank you very much. In preparation for this, obviously, Joe and I have both watched the film, and I also checked out your IMDb page and was impressed by the plethora of credits that you've accrued over the last 10 to 15 years as an actor, uh, as a stunt performer, as a stunt coordinator. I'm pretty sure, Joe, that everyone listening to the podcast will have seen at least one film in the last decade that Eric's been involved in. Oh, for sure. No, probably. Yeah, I've been acting and doing stunts for 26 years now. Um, uh, I've been in close to 300 TV shows, commercials, music videos, movies. Uh, I've been doing this a long time. It's been something that I've been, uh, it's always had my heart and I've been pretty lucky. I mean, let's start at the beginning. How did you get into the crazy business that is show? How did you get involved in movies and TV? Uh, it was a girl. I wanted to impress a girl. <laughs> I wanted to. <laughs> Same. <laughs> yeah. I wanted, there was this girl that I was in love with when I was uh, in kindergarten. And for some reason, I, I would do stupid things. I'd jump off the roof. I'd ride my bike off the roof of the, of the building. <laughs> I would jump off the swings and I would, you know, I would just do, I would smash shopping carts. The stuff that you see on Jackass, you know, back in the late 90s or whatever. Yeah. I was doing that stuff as a five-year-old in the 80s, <laughs> and, and it was just to get laughs from everyone in the neighborhood, and uh, I wanted to, you know, I always wanted to be a stuntman because I was, you know, I just thought it was cool, and when I was 12 years old, it was the first time I ever acted in a movie, it was with a, uh, Christina Applegate and Peter Berg, and uh, I played a, a, a I played a kid that was visiting their father at a at a prison. First thing I first movie I ever did was a movie called Across the Moon, very very old movie. And I uh, got my SAG card and started auditioning and you know getting small little parts here on Nickelodeon shows, uh, Power Rangers. Next thing I know, I'm I was playing. I was I was getting I was the go to guy for Nickelodeon and, and WB at the time, which changed over to the CW for like the jock or the bully or the the idiot who who was all muscle and. Um, roles were coming in, and uh, the thing that that's made me stand out a lot was that I was uh, um, I did all my own stunts, and so instead of hiring two people, people were hiring me. So I was playing very physical roles for wrestler, uh, football player, a hockey player, and so you, they, 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 it was a two for. They were getting two for one. Absolutely, I mean, it's and it was it, it saved them time, it saved them money, and and I did all the stunts. I never got you know I never complained whether or not I got. I was there. To make the the lead actor or the or the 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 the, per, the the main person look good, and they knew that they could rely on me and not have to worry about me getting hurt because I that's what I, that's how I was promoting myself. I was promoting myself as a stunt actor, not a stunt man, not an actor, but a stunt actor. Did you ever get hurt? Did you have to hide it? Uh, you know, how did those things go for you? Uh, I've been hurt a few times on set. I've had, um, I mean, as a as a as a stuntman, I've been hurt. Uh, I got a really nasty gash on a movie that was on a, a very unnecessary take three. I, uh, they wanted me to do another take, and I was like, "Nope, that's the take." Because I already knew, I already knew my skull got peeled back, and Oof. they were like, "Why?" And I let my hand out, and it's on. You can see it on YouTube. You can say Eric Day and I think hospital visit, and it's just me getting staples done in my head. And they wanted to put Novocaine and, and like put me like give me a lot of painkillers, and I was like, "Just do the stapler." I would have done it myself if I could have seen it. But I, I couldn't see it was on my head. So a sec. Uh, Sorry, I, they you fixed s- your head on set so that you could do another take. 
Yeah, well, I had them. I, they had them staple me on set so that I can go back and go back to work. Um, Jesus, I got rushed to the hospital. I got rushed to the hospital on Dunkirk. Um, the very first take. I don't know if you, the, the the new Christopher Nolan movie that came yeah, out. Yeah, um, we saw it. We were filming on the uh, the the water set at Warner Brothers, the same set where they filmed Goonies and Inception and a bunch of like water stuff. And uh, the very first take, they they placed all of us, and there's 40 stunt guys on set in the in the bowels of the ship that's been made up, and there's a hundred extras on each side. And the first thing, <laughs> it's take one, and none of us have padded up or anything. So we we all thought we were going to get time to go pad up and be told what the scene was. Nope. Christopher Nolan likes realism, so he didn't tell any of us shit. And on take one, everyone was like laughing and eating jam and eating the bread. And all of a sudden, you hear action, and it's just <laughs> 3,000 gallons of water just come crashing down and nail all these stunt guys into everyone. And I'm on the wrong end of this shit. The table pinned me up against the wall. Uh, everyone was drowning. I thought my, I had the air knocked out. I mean, I thought my hip got broken again. I was like, this sucks. And it took everything out of me. I couldn't even stand up cause I had the air knocked out. I mean, this, this little, uh, stunt guy was very, very respectable in the business. His name's Rick Avery. He doubles for John Travolta and, uh, Robert De Niro. He stands over me and goes, oh, day, are you okay? And I'm like, help me up. I can't even, fuck, I can't even fucking talk. And it's like, I mean, I'm at the time with all the gear and all the water on me, I'm probably 290 pounds with everything soaking wet and draining on me. And this guy is 145, 50 pounds is trying to help me up. I go walking up stairs like I shit my pants because I'm in that much pain. I'm like, all right, it's it's not as bad as your, your imagination's making it. Just it'll wear off. But an hour and a half goes by because they have to refill the tanks and air all the stunt guys went upstairs and just started stripping down naked and putting all the pads on <laughs> because – everyone had they didn't care about how they looked on this huge set with hundreds of people everyone was just stripping down all the gear and padding up so i go walking back down downstairs i'm i'm trying i'm i'm thinking my hips damp my my damn hips broken so i'm trying to walk slow i don't want to make it worse take 2 is worse than take 1 because everyone knew what was coming you, you right. can see in the eyes you could see in the eyes of all the stunt guys sitting at the table. They were all like really reflecting on their life. Like we were all thinking, why are we doing this? Where did, why the hell am I putting myself through this? Jesus. <laughs> take, after take two, I was given the okay to go to the emergency room and everyone's like working me with kid gloves. Cause I'm in that much. If you're an, if you're, if you're, if you're a stunt man and you're saying I need to go to the hospital, you're in pain because yeah. we, we go home with stuff jacked up on us all the time, <laughs> but cause you don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be that guy that got messed up on set and then is, is like crying about something small. So if you're complaining, it's, it's gotta be something serious. Well, the, the stunt coordinator runs upstairs and he goes, Ade, I need you. And he's a South African guy named Tom Struthers. And he goes, Ade, I need you for one more take, mate. <laughs> and the, uh, the medics on set are like, no man, this guy needs to go to the emergency room. He's already been okay. And then he's like, Ade, I need you for one more take. And I'm like, fuck it, let's do it. <laughs> I go walking, I go walking downstairs, and I'm just sitting there. I'm already in so much more. I'm already in so much pain. What the fuck worse can happen to me, wow. right? Take three is the worst damn take. This uh, other stunt guy, a guy named Riley Harper, who did all the doubling for the uh, the newest um, Point Break, gets his cast sliced off. Bloods everywhere. People are tourniqueting it up, and then they're like, okay, well, Eric's going to the hospital. You can just tag along with him. <laughs> so. The, at the Warner Brothers, they rush us to the emergency room, but the guy just drops us off at the emergency room <laughs> entrance and takes off. We're both dressed up like we're in World War II gear, and I'm carrying the, now I'm carrying this other guy in who's messed up way more than me. It looks like you I'm, got there via time machine. Exactly. No, we're covered in water and blood, and there's like there's a big trail, a slime trail with us. Nurses come. They I say take him first. They take him to go and look at his uh 
his leg, stitch him up. His leg is jacked up because his, his muscle was hanging out. They come in, they take a, 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 an MRI of me. I'm like, is my hip broken? Doctor says you have, he, the doctor goes, what the hell's happened to you? Cause he can see all the scars inside me up until this point. I've had 52 surgeries from when I was a kid run over by a school bus, but that's another story. So they see that my hips already been jacked up. I'm, I've got all kinds of like uh, broken glass bones in me. And I said, is it, I said, is my hip broken? The guy goes, uh, no, you've got arthritis and you've got contusions all on the right side. I go, he goes, you're done for the day. I go, no, I'm not. Give me some shots. I'm going back to set. And they gave me three shots on my right side of my body. I got up out of the wheelchair and got, uh, my, my girlfriend, had, came to the hospital. She picked me up and took me right back to Warner brothers and went right back to set. So that sucked. I mean, what's ridiculous about this, Eric, is that this is just one story from one movie, and this isn't even close to the most fucked up thing that's happened to you yeah. in your life. Oh, no. Oh, God, no. I, I don't know if Joe... Joe, remember the, the time I got a set of kings to a set of aces <laughs> to Dan Smith? Stop it. Not, nine away from $1.2 million at the WSOP? And... <laughs> <laughs> and 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 everyone standing around me when they I almost folded that set of He's not even I, talking ironically right now. Like no, obviously no. we're referencing a very specific thing as being the worst thing that's ever happened to him and he's like, "Yeah, remember remember when I when I got bad beat?" With the guys who were at the table, they said to me, "Is that the worst thing that's ever happened to you?" And I go, "Not even close." No, no, hundred um, percent. Let's let's talk about the, the 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 start of your career then in the late nineties, early two thousands. And you referenced this in the documentary that obviously during that time you're picking up ad hoc acting jobs here and there. It's not enough to pay the bills. You had other stuff going on as well. My resume was 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 filling up, but you know, it, I also have common sense, and and I know that when it just because it's raining at the moment, it's not going to dry up. And that's how acting is. Sometimes you're hot, yeah. sometimes you're not. So I always kept side jobs. And my side job was I was a trainer at a gym in, in Burbank called World Gym. And I ran the nighttime uh, I ran the nighttime shift so that I could have my days open for auditions and meetings and all that. And uh, one of my clients was a very successful Armenian businessman. His name was – he came across as, as – his name was Ray Gazarian. Now – Ray Gazarian was uh, was hiring all the young people at the gym to travel around the world for him, importing expensive leather goods, and he was paying them for it. And people were like, oh, you just met some random guy? Well, at the gym, you meet everyone, especially when you work the front desk and you're the only one there at night. And people become regulars. You get to know them, and they start to know you. And Ray became a very good friend of mine. I had been his trainer for nine months. So in that nine months, I got to know him very good. You know, we would I would tell him about – you know, my life, girls, you know, we would go hang out outside the gym and we became very good friends, very close friends. And he, during this time he was hiring, uh, you know, he was hiring all the people at the gym who were also my friends, uh, to, to, to travel to Turkey. They were coming back through France, through Sweden, through Italy. They, they, they were all bragging about how great of a trip and how great of an experience they were having. And I was jealous. I wanted to to go on these trips and, and explore the world. I'd never been out, out of the U.S. I didn't even have a passport. I'd only been to a couple states. But you know, when you when you live in a small when you live in a small bubble, you want to know what's on the outside of that bubble. The only thing you know is what you see on the news or in movies. You don't know what it's like to go there, and you know, usually it's it's not it's not painted in a good picture. So for me, traveling was it was 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 an amazing opportunity. 
Well, come December, nine months after I'd known this man, my girlfriend at the time, she breaks up with me, and I was depressed. It was obvious that I was depressed. All my friends knew something was wrong with me because I wasn't cheerful. I wasn't, you know, talking. I, you know, I was, I was in a funk. And Ray saw that I was in a funk because he knew me very well by this time. And he goes, Eric, what's going on? And I tell him my girlfriend broke. I mean, I wouldn't just tell this to some random guy. I tell him my girlfriend broke up with me. He knew, he knew how much I cared for her. So his exact words were, I think you need to make a trip for me. And a week later, I had my, my visa, I had my passport, and I went to Turkey, and I, and I had an amazing trip. And Just to pick up at this point, Eric, because obviously this is things are about to go south in a major way. But before yeah. you did this first trip, when you started hearing about these people who are being paid by Ray Gazarian to bring back these suitcases of leather goods, there's a cliche. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. Were you not suspicious? Were you not asking questions about his business practices, why he was doing this and why these people were being paid so well to do what seemed like such a simple task. Absolutely. I asked all the questions. I, I even told my family about it. And I told my mother about these trips. She put me in touch with her FBI friend. This guy tells me, Hey, this happens all the time. People travel to different countries that bring back rugs, they bring back jewelry and they beat the import tax by claiming it as their own. And I said, is there, is it illegal? And he, the way he described it was it's a moral illegal. It's like a jaywalking ticket. I said, will I go to jail for doing this? He said, no, they'll either confiscate it and give you a fine or just confiscate it. And he's the one who sold me. Yeah, My this mom, is crazy. So I remember this, you mentioned this in the documentary and Man, that's some really bad advice this FBI guy gave you who didn't say, well, at least make sure they're bringing back what they tell you that you're bringing back. Yeah, yeah you know, that you would think so, but he, he thought he was talking me out of it. And what he didn't realize was oh. he was actually talking – what he actually didn't realize was he was talking me into it. Because the second he says no jail time, I was hook, line, and sinker. I'm like, I'm going to make a trip. That would be great. And And the thing about it was – Ray, the reason why he was doing this was because we're supposedly bringing back anywhere from 14, uh, sorry, uh, we're bringing back anywhere from 25 to $30,000 worth of leather goods. And by claiming it as our own, we beat the 55% import tax back into the U.S. So we're saving him anywhere from fourteen dollars to $16,000. We get a free trip. We get 800 bucks spending cash. He said that if it does get confiscated, you don't get paid. And, and and I'm thinking, like, if I don't get paid, I'm still getting paid because I got a free fucking trip. I got hotels, and I had a, a great experience. That's that's how I was looking at it. Not the $800. It was right. it was the experience of traveling. And for I mean, I was 19 when I when I started when when I met this guy, and and I was still I was still essentially. I mean, when you're 19, you think you know the world. We don't know shit when we're 19, and when we're 25, we think we know everything. We're still kids at 25. We don't know anything, and so I I was absolutely gullible because this was my friend i trusted him i wanted to believe him so many other uh, of these other people were making these trips and bragging about the great times they had and i was jealous i wanted to go and the only thing that finally made me go was my girlfriend breaking up with me and yeah. he you know that that's what because because my girlfriend at the time she was smarter than i was she was like you better not go you idiot you know you're gonna get arrested some stupid shit's gonna happen and she was thinking like i was gonna get arrested just for being an american in a muslim country for some stupid stuff because she was assuming the worst worst that if you go to a muslim country they're gonna behead you because that's what you see in the damn news and that wasn't the case turkey was a beautiful country turkey was an amazing place i'm 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 glad I got to experience Turkey, not once, but twice. And after the first trip was a complete success and I get back to the U.S., I wasn't sad anymore. I was happy. I was I was ecstatic. And you know what? I was so happy that I'd finally gone on this trip. I was just pissed I hadn't gone sooner. And when he asked me to go the next month, I, I, was, bu- I was busy. I was working. I was, filming, um, I was filming Dude, Where's My Car at the time. And I worked on that, that movie over the course of a couple months. 
but I wanted to keep this opportunity open. Absolutely. So I was encouraging it to the other people at the gym. Hey, I went also, this is great. You know, we all had like a little social gathering and we would brag about what we did. And if we went to the same places, but I was also encouraging it to people that I knew outside of the gym. I was encouraging it to my friends, my family, my brothers, my mother. I encouraged it to three of my brothers and one, and one of their wives. And I would never have done that if I was in on it. Hell no. I had too much to lose and nothing to gain by being a drug smuggler. And that's what we were all being unknowingly used to do with smuggle narcotics. I would be the one to find out the hard way after September 11th in Pakistan. And my documentary, you know, it touches based on absolutely everything in a more uh, detailed uh, fashion. You, you said you watched the documentary, right? We yes. did, yes. <clears throat> we both watched it yesterday. What did you think? I loved hearing this story in greater detail because I heard it from you once on a podcast years ago. And I think that I wasn't skilled enough at hosting podcasts to really get the full story out of you. And also because I was uncomfortable, you know, it's like not a comfortable thing to ask you about and talk to you about. So being able to have this story told to me via documentary, uh, answered a lot of the questions I had, uh, over the years. And I'm glad you touch on some of this stuff as to how you got set up with him in the first place. I remember you back in the day saying to me in retrospect, I should have known. Yeah, I mean, I saw the, the documentary as well, Eric, and obviously I, I didn't know your story. So for me, I was coming into it completely cold. And I knew the bare bones, and I did come in with a certain amount of cynicism, thinking, well, of course he's going to say he was duped. Of course he's going to say he didn't know. And I could tell that it infuriates you to this day when people use the word claims. In fact, you say that in the documentary when people say he claims his innocence. He yeah. claims he didn't know. But I guess you can understand why people might think that that you would have known i think you're just guilty of being naive and you can tell from your shock and horror when you try to make this trip back from pakistan and they find you know nearly well the crazy part to me is that he gets stopped by drug dogs prior to this and i would have felt the exact same way he did right when the first time he gets stopped when the drugs when the dogs and they don't find anything be like cool this is legit obviously if i had drugs on me these they would have just found it yeah yeah. Yeah, in Sweden. No, exactly. It, no, I was. Um, I, you know, you ever help somebody move before? A friend, a family member, a, a girlfriend, and I don't know. Some people actually say, "No, I didn't. I have never done that." Well, I have. I've helped people move before, <laughs> and I've never gone through all their stuff, you know. But I could have been smuggling drugs then. People are like, "Well, my friends would never do that to me." You know what? I thought my friend would never do this to me, and he did. He did. Sure. And. You know, it's, it's a very simple thing. I mean, a murderer will tell everyone he's a thief if it keeps their attention off of him being a murderer. Right. Uh, and a magician is all about look at the hand while he's lifting your watch and your wallet. You know, it's if you're not expecting it, it's going to happen. There's there is a woman I keep I bring this up because this is I'm always like, I don't know, I'm always coming across like uh people who've been through the same situation and they're like, I swear I'm innocent and whatnot. And people say, well, how was, how was it in your possession? You're so stupid. You know, you, you have to, you have to have known because possession is 10 tenths of the law. But there was this woman who worked in Mexico, but she lived in America and she would commute over the Texas border to go to work. And she came back uh, from work one day and went straight to a mechanic because she was getting just routine maintenance work done. And the mechanic's like, you got a problem. You got to look at this. And they saw that there was a fake gas tank underneath her car that was filled with drugs. She calls the cops on herself. She goes, hey, look, I work across the border, and this is what my mechanic found. So the cops 
you know, we're like, Jesus, that's, that would have sucked if you had been caught at the border because yeah, you would have been screwed if you were caught at the border, but because you're turning yourself in here, obviously we're not going to, you know, do, you know, deem you part of it. But what if she had been caught at the border and how many people have been caught at the border who aren't in on it? You know, it, it happens all the time. And if I had seen a show like this back in the day, I would have been smarter. I would have, I would have known that what I was being used to do was too good to be true. And I would have been able to say, you know what, dude, thanks, but no thanks and walk away. And I wish I had seen something like this. That's why I tell this fucking story. I mean, I, I, this isn't fun for me. I hate telling this story. I can imagine. When I did the show locked up abroad, those guys, when I first got back from the, from the States or from, from being incarcerated in Pakistan for three years, locked up abroad, uh, approached me within, I want to say months. And they said, Hey, we got a new show season one. It's not airing yet. It's called locked up abroad and we want you to play. We've got a few episodes we've already filmed that we can send you. So they sent me a couple of, and I need, you know, I needed, I, they sent me a couple episodes and I watched them and all these guys were guilty. They were all stupid. They were all looking for a quick buck. They were all getting paid a ridiculous amount of money. Uh, but, but so when I contacted them, I said, why, why would you think that I'd want to do this show that, like, cause those are your people. I'm like, these aren't my people. These people belong in jail. These guys did, they did the crime and, and I didn't want to be looped in with them. I didn't want to be this. looped if in with were, them. If you were guilty, if you were in on it, you were being really underpaid. $800 is not enough. If you're actually smuggling drugs, it makes perfect sense to get paid 800 bucks. If you're basically just going on a trip. Yeah, well, I would have if I the people that that do these get paid a lot, a lot more money, and it's the reason why they want some idiot like me to do it is because they figure they don't have to pay them what they're really worth. Also, that they won't draw suspicion to themselves when they're at the airports because they don't know they're being used to smuggle anything illegal. I had a wheel of cheese in my bag one time going into Canada, and I was fucking terrified. I can only uh-huh. imagine if I genuinely had something illegal. Yeah, yeah, you had been sweating out buckets, man. Yeah, if you if you had something completely illegal, and it doesn't help that I'm an actor because everyone's like, "Oh, you're an actor. You were acting like nothing was wrong." Fuck you guys. I'm a terrible actor. <laughs> I, I'm just a guy. I'm just a guy who likes who gets hurt, and I get the jobs that no one else wants, and that's the only reason why I work so much. But no, I'm, I'll say first of all, if I can act, you can act. And when people ask me, "Hey, how do I get in the business?" I say, "Hey, just just take your time and and don't give up." Because if I can do it, you sure as hell can do it because there's no magic on my end. But obviously the, what the film details is the trip that you didn't want to do to Pakistan. You get caught. They find 3.6 kilograms of opium in the lining of the suitcase. And you're obviously utterly confused. And you're caught in a country where law enforcement is, well, they take an interesting line. And you learn very quickly that one of the things that's going to happen to you is that they have three days to interrogate you actually that's putting it mildly, to torture you, to try and get more information and ultimately get a confession. And this is something I want to talk to you about because the documentary has a recreation, a rather graphic, detailed recreation. Of I various... skipped that part. I'm going to be honest. I, 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 could, I didn't want to watch it. it well, just... there's, there's, there's beatings. There's yeah. torture by electric shock. Uh, there's torture by kind of like simulating drowning. I mean, is there any poetic license in what you're showing there? Or is that pretty much what went down, how it happened? Uh, what went what went down in real life was way more graphic, but right. we wanted to show the audience. Jamie, who's the director, good friend of mine, she's she's the one who talked me into doing the show and uh, doing the show again. And the reason I'll give I'll get into that in a second, but she was dead set on doing the reenactment and making it as uncomfortable as possible so that the audience can just get a small taste as to how it's done over there. I mean, what not only just what I had to go through, but what how what 
countless people in Pakistan have to go through because that's just the way things are in Pakistan. Them torturing you is a part of their way of getting confessions, of of getting uh, more getting more criminals. They truly believe that that's the the right way to do things. And it's I mean they weren't treating me special for being an American. They were just doing their job and. I was tortured in the country, and when you don't have the right answers, and you're not, and you also have the sand to not give them an answer they want to hear, it's going to hurt, and it's going to hurt a lot. Then during this time, you are effectively in prison, awaiting trial, I guess. Uh, during this time, there are people back in the states working on your behalf, and at this point, during this time that you're in prison, the Ray Gazarian figure, who we learn is actually Rasmik Manassian, is arrested, and signs a statement, signs an affidavit affirming that you were an unwilling participant, that you were a mule, that you were duped. And you have an opportunity, and this is fascinating to me, that you're told that because of this evidence, if you go into court, present this statement, pay a fine, and plead guilty, you can be out in two months. And you choose to plead not guilty, at which point you are given a seven-year sentence. And while I completely respect and understand the fact that you wanted to preserve your integrity, that your honor, your pride was more important to you than your freedom, as you say in the film. 99% of people having experienced torture, having experienced that prison, are going to say, fuck it, I'll say whatever it takes to get me out of here. I, I almost admire it. On the other hand, I'm almost thinking, why the fuck wouldn't you just say the word guilty and get out of there? Trust me, I wanted to, but I, I know me better than anyone, and I know that if I had pled guilty for a crime I didn't commit, for a crime that I was made fun of by the embassy and the countless consulars who came to the, the, the prison to make fun of me, you know, maybe next time you'll pack a little lighter who didn't believe me up until the point when they found out, wait, this guy's actually innocent. I knew that if I had pled guilty for a crime I didn't commit, I would have not been able to live with myself. I knew it was going to hurt. But if I had pled guilty, I would have probably ended up killing myself years later from shame. I had to go through it in order to save my life. So it seemed okay. So obviously, this was important to you. Was it's how you feel about yourself and your own perception of yourself? It seems to be what's most important to you. How much of it, though, was factoring just not wanting other people to be right? None of it, man. Because I don't care what other people think. I care. I care. I, when I look in the mirror, I got to respect myself. And if I'd gone like. Trust me, all this took all this. When you're in jail, you have a lot of time on your hands. You have a lot of time to think. I had plenty of time to think. And I knew that this deal was coming up. It wasn't last second. I knew this deal was coming up. I had plenty of time to think about it. And I knew that, that you know, I had a girl back home that I loved to death. I, I wanted to get back to her. And if people had thought to myself, hey, well, Eric, why, why did you plead guilty? I was innocent. Then I'm a fucking liar. I'm a liar if I plead guilty for a crime I didn't commit. No one's going to believe me. And the, to be to be made fun of for something you don't belong in and don't deserve to be going through, and then people to call you a liar to boot, it, it's it's just it's it's for me it sucks. I didn't fucking do this, so I'm not going to plead guilty for a crime I didn't commit. Fuck everyone else. I'm I, I, my okay. Let's go back a little further. I'm sorry. I'm getting a little worked up. I just get no, pissed off. no. Um, this like look, <laughs> we're both sitting here just in great admiration of this sort of fortitude. And the ability to stand up that much for what you believe in in yourself, like, and that's maybe the most interesting thing about all this. So I'm glad to be, you know, I don't, I don't want you to work to get worked up, Eric, but like we both admire you quite a bit. Uh, thanks, I appreciate that. But um, 
when I was a when I was a kid, one of my heroes that I read about was a was a character that I I think everyone's heard the name of Davy Crockett. And Davy Crockett was at the Alamo, and I remember reading a story when I was uh, I don't I think I was seven or eight that this guy was facing certain death, and the Mexican army asked him what his last words were, and he asked them to surrender to him. <laughs> <laughs> And in the, and I always thought to myself, in the face of certain death, this guy still managed to have a sense of humor. So I'm not saying I'm Davy Crockett, but I've always lived by, you know, I'm never, it, it, you, I would have to be brought off the football field in a body bag. Uh, I didn't just want to be the strongest uh, at my school. I wanted to be the strongest in my league and not just in my league that ever played football. I always wanted to be the best. I always wanted to be smarter than everyone. So I studied harder. I wanted to be faster and better. So I worked out harder than everyone. I wanted to be the best stuntman that ever lived. And I wanted to be the guys that everyone would talk about, you know, around cigars and laugh at the stupid shit that I actually pulled, but they would, they would respect me for what I did. And when I, when I was going, if I, I full well knowing that even though these guys knew I was innocent and they were telling me to go through the legal system, even though I'm facing a possible death sentence or life, I was, I had it in my back of my head, head, depending on this judge that he could possibly give me death or life. I thought to myself, if this asshole gives me life or I, that, that'll suck. But if he gives me death, I'm going to go up those steps with a little jest. I'm going to give the crowd a little head shake. I'm going to flip the noose man and nickel and go down with both thumbs up. That's just how I'm going to do it. And I wanted to... I just, I was never going to plead guilty for a crime I didn't commit. And I just, I had, I had to stay to that. I'm maybe a second was like, just do it. Just get out. No, fuck that. Fuck everyone there. Pain's temporary pride's forever. And I'm never going to ever, if I had done it, if I had done it, I would have been cool. I would have been like, whatever. I did a bad thing. And I wouldn't even fucking apologize. I would have probably, probably already had a movie made and a bunch of, you know, people wanting to, to do stuff. But because I didn't plead guilty, people have, have, uh, not believed my story. They've, they've, they've assumed the worst because they want to assume the worst. They don't want to believe that I've gone through something as bad as I went through and that I didn't deserve it. It's easier to swallow if you think I did it. Therefore, I sort of kind of deserved it. But it's, but if you know that I didn't do it, then wow, how can I complain about my own life? How can I complain about not having anything to watch on TV or, or not having the job I want? And, and just, just complain about my every little day nuances. When this asshole went to jail for a crime he didn't commit, got tortured, and got stabbed and got in more fights, and, and, and he didn't have to had he just pled guilty. Everything that happened to you at the Adiala Central Jail is pretty horrific, and it's detailed in the film. I mean, uh, everyone, just think Midnight Express and multiply it by the factor of 10, quite frankly. Um, there's one particular thing in prison that I wanted to focus on, which you don't go into in a great deal detail in the film, and that is the first friend that you made in jail who introduced you to the game of poker. Murad. Yeah, Murad. First place I ever played poker was on death row in Pakistan. First I mean, place that's, I ever played. That's not the kind of environment that generally we recommend people learn poker. We always say, you know, try try playing for microstakes <laughs> right. online or you know, have you heard to, of Zynga? To go to go to your local <laughs> poker club or go to a home game. Death row in Pakistan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you're you're just happy to have anything to make the time pass. And Murad introduced me to the game of poker, and I learned how to play in a different language. And I'm I'm glad I did. Murad and I would become best friends on death row and. Uh, I'm glad he, because of what he taught me in Pakistan, I, I still carry with me today. I, I owe a lot of my success to that man. 
Because this is the other thing. This is the second part of the story. Having learnt the game in prison, when you are finally released, and again, the work that your family was doing back in the States, the intervention of Bill Richardson, the former governor of New Mexico, you come home uh, just after Christmas 2004, and you say in the documentary that poker played a major role in helping you when you came back to, for want of a better word, normality, when you came back to the States. But there's no real detail there, and I'm really fascinated because for everyone listening to this show, and for Joe and myself, poker is a game, and it's a, it's a love-hate experience. We have the highs, we have the lows, but I get the sense that poker means so much more to you, and it had an important role in helping you readjust. And I'm interested to hear more about that. Oh, when, when I first got back, my uh, my mom was in the documentary. She, her and I were never close. And I had a bad childhood, you know. I was uh, growing up, so my mom and I were never very very close. But she tried very hard to get me out of prison. Unfortunately, um, her attempts fell short on many times, um, on many cases, and I ended up having to become a uh, a lawyer in Pakistan and get myself out. But uh, that's it's it's just too, so there's just so much detail that it wasn't able to make it into the the documentary. Now, when I get out of jail. I got back on December 26, 2004. I have nothing but the clothes on my back. I don't have any money. I don't have, um, I don't have anything. And my mom thinks that I'm going to be a kid again. She's like, oh, you're coming home with me and you're not leaving again? I'm like, that's uh. not an option. And I'm like, mom, I need the keys to my car. I had a 56 Chevy that you know, was in the garage and I just had to you know, get the battery charged and whatnot. And she's like, well, you need to get it registered first. You, know, you, know, you need to get your... And I'm like, no, I don't. Just give me the keys to my car. I'm not asking your permission. I, I'm, I've been in jail three years. I'm not going to be in jail anymore. And that's that was the mentality of my mother at the time. She was very controlling, very smothering. Um, so she wasn't going to give me the keys to my car. My football coach, though, who I'm still very good friends to, with to this day, he even named one of his kids after me, actually. He's got a lot of kids, though, so they were running out of names. <laughs> um, and uh, he comes over with his wife to come in and, and see me and, you know, catch up and you know, he, I tell him, look, I got meetings already set up. I mean, I've been back one damn day and I'm like, I got meetings set up. I want to get my life back together. I want to go meet with my, my, you know, my, my, my manager. And I got a stunt coordinator buddy who wants to, you know, throw work my way. And uh, he says, here, take my car. I said, I'll have it back to you by tonight. He goes, get your life back, Eric. He, you know, and, and this guy didn't have a car to lend me. He only had one car. He had a, a, a fan at the time. He had, I think five kids. He's now has nine kids. Um, but this is this is the big this is a big thing for him to you know he doesn't have the the, the resources to do that but I, my mom wouldn't give me the keys in my own car so I'm relying on my football coach who gives me the keys to his car. Now everyone wanted to meet with me when I got back on you know they wanted to have lunch and you know drinks basically they wanted to see if I was crazy I, I think that's what everyone was like wow I can't believe you're not crazy you know and uh, my friend Simo who was uh, one of my gym buddies at the gym um, just a massive man looks just like the Rock and he's the, just a big bodybuilder. When I had left, he didn't know that much English, but we were still very good friends. When I got back, he knew English so well, and he was happy. He was crying. He was hugging me, and he treated me to lunch, and he gave me $100. I didn't, he knew I needed it, though. I, didn't, I would never have taken it, but he forced it into my top pocket and then forced me into my coach's little car. and you know, it, it, was, it was what I needed. It was really what I needed. Um, a friend of mine had hired me literally the ne uh, for the next three days to do work on the movie War of the Worlds with uh, Tom Cruise. Now, I haven't even been back a couple of days, and a friend of mine's throwing me a bone saying, hey, I can get you uh, a couple of days of stunt work on, on War of the Worlds. Are you ready to work? Is that too soon? I'm like, yes, I need work, but you don't get paid right away. So I went and I worked all day, and then I was stuck in the 405 traffic, and, I, and, I, and I, that it was going to take me like two hours to get back to, up to my mom's house up in the Antelope Valley, and I was like, fuck 
this traffic. I, I saw off to the, uh, the freeway was signed for Hollywood Park Casino. And I go and I drive off the park, uh, off to the casino. Something we did all the time on death row and in poker or and in prison was play poker. I was running poker tournaments in prison. Um, so I thought, I said to myself, I'll see what I can do with $50. And I sit at the, they had a 40 table, one, two, no limit 40 table. Well, pretty quickly I move over to the one, one, 100, 300 table. I leave back going straight to set with 2,600 bucks in my pocket. I sleep all day on set. And I said, you know, they didn't, I, I fell asleep all day on set. I go back to the casino that night, turn 300 bucks into another 1700 bucks, go back, re, uh, work on set, sleep when I can go back to the casino and do it again. End of the week. I already had my own car. I already had a, uh, I was running a room out from a friend's house down in Northridge. I hadn't even been home yet at all that week. I bring my coach's car back up to him. My mom, she's doing a power trip. She's like, you know, you're going to get back. You're, you're going in trouble. You're, you're disrespecting me. I'm like, I, I'm an adult. I don't need to tell you anything. And she's like, well, I rented your room out. I'm like, I already got my own room. I'm here to pick up. I'm here to pick up my car. And you know, it was, it was, no one helped me get back on my feet except my football coach and my friend Simo. I did everything on my own. And it was thanks to what Murad taught me on death row in Pakistan. I would never have gotten back on my feet if it hadn't have been for meeting that man. And so when we spoke before years ago, you, the way you put phrases like poker kind of saved your life. And you said that you used to play uh, against the guards and against other inmates and you would win food. Like uh, what I found odd then, which I didn't really ask you about is that so, so the guards would pay up. Well, they had to buy in first. But, um, like we were, I was running like five rupee poker tournaments, 10 rupee poker tournaments. You know, those, that's a lot of money. Those people, the guards were making a hundred rupees a day from the government, but yet they were paying 15,000 rupees a month just to be allowed to work inside the prison. The prison's built on corruption and, and, you know, the guards, pro the guards would play and buy in, but they were probably, I mean, they were hundred percent using money. They, you know, jacked from prisoners for whatever reason, either extorting it out of them or working for them. Um, but yeah, everyone would pay up. I'd make everyone pay. I never let the guards in for free. Fuck that. I was like, you guys are paying 10 rupees and they would pay and sit down and go and play. <laughs> I, by the time I like the first year and a half was terrible. I mean, I had all my, I got my ass beat. I got all my fingers broken. I was starved. But once I figured out the situation and I started learning the language and I knew the language and people started seeing me as a human being and they started seeing all the nice things I was doing for the prison, you know, mostly to make my time pass by, but also they were all benefiting off of it because I, you know, for me, I said, I might as well make it my home. I had a nice garden. I brought in a water well. I had all the um, sewers behind the cells fixed because they had all rusted out and shit was pouring out everywhere. And, and literally millions and millions of flies were were, 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 were going in the back of the cells. And that was like the, after the, the, um, after I got moved off of death row to two cell. And that was the, you know, literally the first year and a half. But once I had all those things fixed, it, it completely, the, the flies went from millions to thousands and there was still a lot of flies, but it was a big difference as to how fewer they were. And the back of the uh, prison, which was just littered with dirt and glass and trash and burning piles. And I've cleaned it all up. I, I made a yard. I, I, I turned it into I turned it into my because I had a, a hell of a green thumb and it, and it helped it was therapeutic for me to make the place look better. And I did it for me, but everyone benefited off of it. And when I would run the poker games, the poker games were to, were to kill time. It, it it made prisoners, you know, days pass easier, and everyone was was a lot nicer to one another. And the guards were all working for me by this time. Instead of beating it out of player people, I said, "Look, you guys are all going to make money, but you're going to be bringing it because they don't bring you anything in that prison as long as you have money. They will bring you anything." So I was having them bring me food. Poker cards, poker chips, um, a lot of VCDs, DVDs. I became the cell phone guy. I got the first cell phone into that prison. 
your enduring spirit throughout all of this is fucking wild, my friend. The fact that you don't seem particularly messed up by this, and I'm sure you are, but you you do a great job of just living your life still and keeping a smile plastered on your face. Well, here's my question to you, Joe. When you first saw Eric on the poker circuit yeah. all those years ago, I mean, you say you heard this story, but I mean, did you know that that's the guy? Or was, no, you- I heard it from him directly. He came to me and said, I think I have an interesting story to tell. And I was like, all right, yeah, sure, whatever. Dude. And then I heard it and I was like, okay, yes, you do have an interesting story to tell. And look, Eric is... Uh, Eric comes across the way a lot of Hollywood actors do. He's a confident, sort of brash dude, and you would never suspect that uh, beneath all that is this crazy thing that happened uh, that really could have broken a person, and whether or not you were broken by Eric, you don't appear to be. And so it's just fucking... uh, It's inspiring, I think that you stuck to your guns and that you also have this message now of positivity, which is like, Hey, everybody, like things could be a lot worse. No, they, they can be, man. I mean, I, I, I'd love to say that I'm, I'm not uh, scathed by any of it, but I'm, I'm messed up. You know, I'm dealing with my own demons as much as possible. I'm, I, I think about all kinds of stuff. Um, and I just try to smile because that's all you can do. We're all we're all carrying skeletons in our closets. Just some of us have them running around. And <laughs> I, I, I had a guy uh, I had a guy contact me yesterday on Facebook, and he, he's actually from London. I don't I'm not going to give his name, but I, the reason why I don't talk to I, I, I usually send people nice messages back. You know, thanks for the support. I hope that you know good things happen with you in your life. I, I give them messages of encouragement because words actually are stronger than people realize. And this guy just kept reaching out to me and telling me that his life's messed up and he's got four kids and his, you know, he, he wants to kill himself and he, he can't be happy and he doesn't understand. And he watched my documentary. He watched um, Banged Up Abroad, I guess it's called in, in, in England. It's not, not called Locked Up Abroad. It's yeah. called Banged Up Abroad. And I told him, I said, look, you, you got to watch my documentary because Banged Up Abroad is just... 48 minutes of the exciting stuff my documentary explains it all and it helps you appreciate your own life and that's the that's the positive feedback i've been getting from it so his his own girlfriend contacted me and says look you know he's doing really bad for some reason he just wants to talk to you it'll mean the world so i i I skyped this guy and i and i just listened and he you know he was in a bad spot but i was making him laugh and he was like how did you not kill yourself and i go i thought about it all the time man but all i would do is tell myself five more minutes just hang in there five more minutes. And before I knew it, five minutes had come and gone. And then I would tell myself five more minutes. And by the by the end of the hour, before I knew it, I got to the end of the day. And tomorrow was a better day. My ears weren't killing me. Um, I wasn't as depressed. I was I was a little happier for whatever reason. And, and it let me know that just because I felt this way for this small little time, it didn't mean that I'm going to feel that way forever. And all you got to do is just get through the damn day. Do whatever it takes to get through the day. And I mean, I listened to the guy, and and that's just one of many messages I've been getting from the people who've seen three years in Pakistan. Before I would get death threats and harassing messages from the people who saw banged up abroad and 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 filled in the gaps on their own because because there was a bunch of unanswered questions there. And when these people start 
filling in the answers on their own. They assume the worst, and they're not even close to being it's, accurate. It's the worst, man. The sort of mob uh, justice mentality that people have these days, where they feel like they're entitled to to make a judgment on you based on what they think happened. I mean, I was going to ask why, um, or how rather, the the documentary came about. Was that the principal reason, Eric, that you didn't like the fact that this National Geographic Channel show existed, and you wanted to tell a more fleshed out version of the story uh, from your perspective? Yeah, I don't think they gave they didn't give me anywhere near enough time. Uh, Raw Entertainment, that is UK based, they flew me out to England and they had me they had me tell them a very rushed thirteen hour story. Like they tried to like plan out what they wanted. I was like, I can't do it that way. Just let me tell my story in in in, in order. And they and so I told them my whole story in a rushed thirteen hours one day. They took all the exciting stuff and they made the episode of Banged Up Abroad. I played myself on the reenactment um, because that was the that was my ego wanting to make sure it was done right. You know. And the problem with that, though, is that it only told one year, two months of my story. It left out another 22 months of my story. And people started filling in the gaps like, oh, everyone just liked you all of a sudden. Oh, you, you know, you beat everyone up in the prison and you know, you're, you're Superman, you're Rambo. You know, with this, so, so for six years, I've been getting her to this day. I've been getting harassing uh, messages, death threats. People telling me, why haven't you killed yourself yet? And that kind of stuff. How many dicks did you suck in Pakistan? You know, you sold your, your ass for a bowl of lentil soup every day. And I, I handle it with, with a sense of humor. When someone goes, you, you know, you were everyone's boyfriend in, in prison. I was like, only the special few, you know, how many dicks did you suck? I lost count after hour one, you know, it's, you you have to have a sense of humor about it. Otherwise, it's just going to eat at you. But it, it, it does eat at me. But you have, to, you have to have thick skin. So Jamie, my friend, who I've known for over 20 years, she says, uh, Eric, it's, this is terrible. Let's, let's tell your story. Let me tell your documentary. She had already done a documentary called When the Bow Breaks, and I watched it. She had done it. She did a great job. She goes, well, tell it in your words and you know, from the beginning to, to the end. And th- this way, it wasn't rushed. People – People were going to have all the questions answered. They they also were able to understand how I was the way I was with the bus accident, with football, with yeah, you know, my girlfriend at the time that gave me hope to get back, and 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 that wasn't all bad in prison. That there was good things that happened, and how I was able to not lose my mind, and that's why we told the documentary. And I, so far, so far, I I think it's been positive because the people who've been reaching out to me. They haven't been making fun of me. They've been asking me for advice. They've been asking me for, um, you know, how, how they can get through a bad situation. Or it's given them it's given them hope when they didn't have any. It's given them a little bit more appreciation for their own life. And that's why I'm, you know, I, I shared it because, um, you know, like I said, I just wish I had had a story like this back in the day. So I wouldn't have had to go through what I went through. And if anyone was meant to go through this in order to tell everyone else it's sick, but I was the best candidate because if anyone was built for prison, it was me. I mean, I thought that a bunch of times watching the documentary that I don't know that many people would have survived this. And that I think you mentioned it too in in the movie that, you know, that, you know, your brother almost went on the trip and that you in a sense were glad that it was you that went, uh, and I, I seriously don't know any that I've ever met anyone else in my life that could have gone through this the way you have and come out uh, as as intact as you did. I mean, it's really a testament. Have you uh, been approached to to do motivational speaking to uh, to you know because this is something that people not that you would want to profit on this, but people pay a lot of money uh, to hear stories like this and to you know and to be inspired. Uh, by people like you, is this something that you've done and/or have considered doing? 
Uh, I'll tell you right now, I've, I've not, other than working as an actor or well, working, playing myself on the show locked up abroad, I've never made a penny off of what happened to me. Not to this day. Um, would I want to do that? I hate telling my story. I really do because it just, it opens up fresh wounds and you think everything's yeah. healed, but it's not. And I, I'm embarrassed about what happened to me. I don't like telling my story, but you know, I do it so that it, it wasn't in vain. I do it so it wasn't for nothing because I haven't gotten anything. I have a $20 million civil suit against the asshole that set me up, but he cut a deal with the DEA so because he gave up all these other names that they'll never prosecute him for what he did to me. And even though I got a $20, $20 million civil suit, I've never gotten a penny from it, and I don't think I'll ever, I ever will. Do you think he'll ever be found? Do you think he's even still alive? No, he's around somewhere. He's, he's, somewhere, he's somewhere around. I found him. I found him one time. And I, I beat the shit out of him when I found him. Um, and people saw a big white guy beating up an Armenian in a rouse up in Northridge, and they called the cops on me. And uh, when the cops got my side of the story, the cops said, it sounds like this guy got a little street corner justice. Never do it again. I'm not allowed within any I'm – not, I'm not allowed near him. I, that guy got off so easy, and it, it, it tears me up, but – I have no choice but to go on with my life. The the biggest fuck hit you to him and everyone else is success and just being happy. And those are my only goals, so just to be happy and just to, you know, to to not let it weigh me down. And it, sometimes it's tough. It really is, you know, especially when I've been having to tell the story again and again. But if you had gotten that necessary. money, if you had gotten the $20 million that you were uh, legally awarded, what would you have done with it? Oh, I would have had one great weekend in Vegas with it. I would have, and I would have, and I would have videotaped it so I could have relived it in my mind every day. No, if I'd gotten that twenty million dollars, I mean, <laughs> I would have played the one drop <laughs> twenty times. All right, <laughs> yeah. Eric Ortiz fired 20... off twenty bullets in the one drop. <laughs> <laughs> Damn right, I would have. I don't know what I would have done with it, man. I would have probably been doing the same thing i'm doing today which is acting and stunt coordinating traveling around yeah the world i can't imagine it changing you like i can't imagine nah. like i can't picture you with 20 million dollars because you're a guy that <laughs> that just you know you the the acting and the stunt stuff seems to make you so happy i almost wouldn't want you i mean i know you wouldn't stop doing it but i even wouldn't want you in a position where you would be able to stop doing that like i can tell you just love it I love it, man. I would still, I mean, I would probably still be going and auditioning for the one-liners and working on Mayans and, and, and just, you know, I, 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 Hey, tomorrow, Thursday, I get to go and fight cold, sto stone cold Steve Austin for a music video. I mean, this is great. This is what I want to do. If I was a, if I was a multi-millionaire right now, I would still be doing exactly what I'm doing now. Just from a nicer house. I think that's about it. Good. To, good to hear it. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I think this is the longest interview we've ever done on this podcast, but obviously there was a lot to talk about, and it is a fascinating story. And as Joe said, it's amazing how adjusted you are. I can completely understand why everyone wanted to find out whether you'd lost your mind when you got out, because most people would, but you've kept it together, you've rebuilt your life, and uh, we salute you for that. I appreciate that. If if um I'm just if people watch it and they have any questions, they can find me on uh, Instagram at my at my handle at Eric Aude, E R I K A U D E, or on uh, Twitter. And bottom line, I, I tell you, if they watch this, you know, it'll it'll answer all their questions. It'll make them smarter that this stuff is actually happening, and it'll also help them appreciate their own lives. It, it will. I mean, I don't I don't know, you know, 
I'm not saying it's it's a magic pill or anything, but it's just it'll it'll make all the little things that piss you off just sort of not matter, if that makes sense. It does make sense, and it has that effect, and I think it's up to the individual uh, for how long they want to let that, you know. For, I think for anyone, for at least a few minutes afterward, you will not sweat the small stuff. But, uh, you know, I would encourage people to think back on this when they do start sweating the small stuff again. Yes, absolutely. Thank, thank you very much for bringing me on the show, man, and letting me talk. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. Look, and I know you, you've mentioned that you don't really like telling the story, and I appreciate it because I, I do think that it is important story to be told, and also, you know, it's... It's it's incredibly interesting. So thank you for sharing it with us uh, again. I appreciate it. No, thank you, man. I appreciate it. So just to recap, that documentary, Three Years in Pakistan, the Eric Day story, available to watch in a number of places. Joe and I both watched it on iTunes. Um, I'm really glad that we had Eric on the show. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm just glad that... Uh, I'm glad he's with us. You know what I mean? Like, I'm glad that there are people like him in the world because I hear a story like that. I'm like, there's so many points where I would have given up and just not, not survived, not lived, uh, not had the, uh, the odd day, odd day to, uh, to stick to his guns and be like, I'm not pleading guilty. Like just what a, what an absolute beast. So we'll back to normal next week with a more traditional episode of the podcast. It's going to be, I guess, our Run It Up Reno special because you are going to be in Reno, Nevada. I am so looking forward to this. It's really weird to be at a point in my life where people want me to actually come play poker. And I might... Look, let's be honest. I'm going to be miserable. I'm, gonna be as, I, I'm not going to win a dime. This is my classic... I'm going there. I've got an opportunity. We're going to play some poker. I'm not going to win a dime. As, so, As far as I can tell... Pretty much anyone who is anyone in the poker world is going to be there. I, I imagine you'll be able to grab someone at the event, even if it's one of the stars guys, to just come on the show and be next week's sure, guest. Sure, it depends, you know, because we are broadcast to a worldwide audience. Now, there's going to be a bunch of people from Survivor there. I don't know if that's at all interesting to people who listen to this podcast because Survivor tends to be pretty, I don't nationalistic. You know, Americans watch American Survivor. Do they have, they have it was here first, wasn't it? In England? No, no, no. It was it. It, it started, I believe, in uh, in Sweden, okay. and then it went to America, and then then it came to the UK. It only ran for two seasons in the UK. It was never a big hit. Okay, so if look, if there, my point is, there's all kinds of promotion going on for running up Reno right now. Of who's going to be there? If you guys have someone that you want me to talk to. While I'm there, let me know. And I think it's going to be a very fun environment. And I should be able to just be able to grab somebody for a few minutes. And we can record the interview separate even if we have to. Sure. So we'll check in with Joe in Reno next week. I think in a couple of weeks' time, we'll do the first of our PCA main event TV recaps. Because the first three episodes will then be available to everyone. Remember, the PCA main event is now running on Wednesday nights on Channel 4 in the UK. It gets uploaded to the Pokestars YouTube channel and PSTV the Thursday afterwards, the following day. We might be blessed in a couple of weeks' time by the presence of Mo the Destroyer, online qualifier Mo Schwab. You may remember him from the live stream. He features in episode two, so hopefully we can make that happen if he's not somewhere remote in Canada chopping down right, trees in with, a helicopter. No, with no cell phone signal. Um, we do still need super fans. We haven't got the super fan segment this week. It will be back next week, and this week's star code is GPL Finals. G P L F I N A L. 
S. How dare you? And I did say... How dare you? Did say that we Bring would that up. potentially <laughs> set some super fan subjects. Um, I sent you a list, Joe, of 50 of my favorite movies. It's not a top 50. It's just 50 of my oh, favorites. Oh, 50 randoms. 50 randoms. Oh, okay. But I figured these might be movies that you would be interested Does in. Does everyone have one of these lists? I'm always inspired by the story of Martin Scorsese, who was asked to write down his 10 favorite films of all time yeah. and had to be stopped when he got to 150. Yeah, okay. I'm the same. You, st you start writing a list, and I just stopped when I got to 50. There is so... I, I, we could do a whole episode based on this list of movies you sent me. I'm, we'll keep it brief, because I know we're almost out of time. Of your 50 movies, I'd seen 24 of them. Roughly half. Yeah. Uh, so here's what I've... I've narrowed it down to 10 you can choose from. Five that I genuinely want to watch, and okay. five that I kind of owe it to you, because they're movies that you've either purchased for me yep. over the years that I haven't watched, yep. or movies that you've spoken to at great length about. So, the first five, uh, Battle of Algiers, as I think one you bought me for my birthday like seven or eight years ago. Yes. Singing in the Rain, I think is one you've bought me twice. twice. <laughs> Mishima. A Life in Four Chapters by Paul Schrader is a movie that you've mentioned quite a bit. 2001 in Space Odyssey is like a crime that I haven't it's seen It's an absolute this movie. crime. All I will say about this is, I don't know whether you're aware, but there is a restored version to celebrate the movie's 50th anniversary, restored by Christopher Nolan, and there are 70mm prints playing in cinemas across the world. I can't believe that there isn't a cinema in LA that is showing this I'm, movie. I'm sure I can find it in LA. I just have to be there, is the issue. <laughs> uh, and then Belle du Jour, I remember you talking about a great life oh, wow. one time about I mean, something. I could but... do an entire podcast about the films of Luis Bunuel, um, from his early work with Salvador Dali through to the French films of the 1970s. And Belle de Jour. I mean, I fell in love with Catherine Deneuve after mm -hmm. watching this film. Um, I'm going to be kind, by the way, and I'm not going to force any of our listeners to watch foreign language films. Well, I skipped the, the Decalogue, right? Because that's a 10-part movie. Yeah. Yeah, so I was like, nah, it's not happening. I'm so sorry. Uh, so those are the five. That's me, like, throwing you a bone. Here are the five that I, I genuinely want to see. Okay. Although 2001's kind of on that list. The Dirty Dozen. Great movie. Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, you've not got four hours to watch a movie, so again, I'm going to take Thank pity. You. Okay, fine. North by Northwest. Arguably my favorite Hitchcock movie because it's just pure joy. Is that the one? That's the one with the airplane scene, It's right? the one with the airplane scene. I can't remember if I've seen that or not. I don't think I have. This is, again, a crime here. Taxi Driver. When I read this one out in the office, literally everyone chorused, how the fuck has Joe not seen Taxi Driver? It's just, uh, I've not seen most of Scorsese's movies, to be honest. It is Scorsese, right? Yes, it is okay, Scorsese. Okay, cool. And, and Some Like It Hot. I don't think I've, that's uh, Marilyn Monroe? Yeah, I never. I've never seen a Marilyn Monroe movie. I, I mean, this, uh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, I'm going to do you a solid. So here is my list of five films that Joe needs to see before he turns 44. So if, so if a super fan picks one of these... I will be forced into watching it. Yes. Okay. So these are the five movies that I'm setting as subjects. And to be clear, there is a PCA satellite ticket and an EPT Prague satellite ticket combined, plus Pokestar swag up for grabs if you want to pick one of these five films as your specialist subject. Singing in the Rain, <laughs> 2001 A Space Odyssey, Taxi Driver, Some Like It Hot, North by Northwest. Now, that's not to say that you can't pick your own specialist subject, but you're not going to be playing for as good a prize you're a lock if you come out of the gate download this podcast today and be like bruh this is it you're a shoo-in you're a shoo-in be a super fan you're a shoo-in either way whether you want to pick your own specialist subject or whether you want to pick one of those five movies 
Singing in the Rain, 2001, Taxi Driver, Some Like It Hot on North by Northwest, hashtag poke it in the ears on Twitter is the best way to apply. And I decided it was on James's list that he had It's a Wonderful Life on his list. I've never seen it. I will watch it over Christmas with my mom so someone can have It's a Wonderful Life, uh, whatever, after PCA or whatever the okay. first normal show we do is we'll after do that. PCA. All right, guys, that is it. What a show it's been, huh? Ups and downs and movies and documentaries and and good old prison story. Good old stories from the yard. Thank you very much, Eric Day, for being with us. That's it for this week's show. Do not forget, please subscribe, like, comment. Use the hashtag poker in the ears. Let us know what you think. If you watch the documentary, let us know what you think of Eric's story. If you have some inspirational words that you'd like to pass along to Eric, we can do that as well. But all those clicks and likes and comments and talking about us on social media, it helps us out a great deal. I'm done shilling for now. It's been a long show. (laughs) For James Hardigan, I am Joe Stapleton. Smell you later.